To Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Oh my, oh my. How is it going, everybody? My name's Tim Hanlon, and of course, it's Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Thank you for finding us. Thanks for downloading us, putting us in your earbuds. However, you're... Um, mainlining this uh, week's episode. We appreciate it tremendously. We're going to uh, point our uh, GPS in the general direction of the city of brotherly love. Yeah, and we're going to go back, way back. Not all that way back, I guess, if you really think about it, you know, in the time continuum that we find ourselves in as human beings. Uh, but a brief blip in time that is uh, memorable for a certain generation of sports fans that uh, either grew up or visited often Philadelphia and went uh, to see uh, games indoors, perhaps even concerts indoors uh, during that period of time, the late 60s through, I geez, almost the late 19, the late 2000s, actually, the late aughts. We're going to talk about America's showplace. It's called, or was called, The Spectrum, a fascinating tale with lots of great memories with our guest this week, Lou Scheinfeld, who was the Chief instigator, I guess. He was sort of the uh, uh, the, the president of, uh, of the arena. Uh, he was uh, part of the founding uh, of the Philadelphia Flyers, the securing of the NHL franchise that became the Flyers, the naming of the spectrum, the building of it uh, with his pals, his partners in crime, Ed Snyder, uh, Jerry Woolman, part of that mix. Uh, Earl Foreman makes an appearance, uh, but without uh, Lou Scheinfeld, 
this uh, facility known as the Spectrum and 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 well regarded, not just in terms of uh, sports fans uh, and their love for uh, the old Spectrum, but also uh, as a mecca for concerts. Uh, you, you have to remember that in the late 60s, early 70s was kind of sort of the beginnings of sort of the golden age of the big arena rock concert, uh, sort of the uh, ascendance uh, of uh, FM freeform radio back in the day, that uh, that band coming into its uh, into its own and long uh, sided album play and the various artists that uh, regularly toured. Well, the, the, the spectrum uh, became basically known uh, as uh, perhaps the preeminent for a good period of time there in the 1970s, the preeminent uh, big arena uh, location for musical events and concerts. Um, but of course, the 76ers, the Philadelphia Flyers, a raft of teams, uh, the ones not only that you knew like those, but but folks like uh, the uh, Philadelphia Freedoms, the 1974 one-year wonder in the world team tennis uh, situation there, Billie Jean King and, and Elton John singing his song, et cetera. The Philadelphia Wings of the original National Lacrosse League from 74 to 75, and of course, coming back. Uh, into the Eagle Box Lacrosse League and all the sort of uh, subsequent league name changes uh, uh, in the uh, 80s and 90s. And of course, now they're back again in a reincarnated way, not in the spectrum, of course, but the Wings played there in the spectrum. Of course, we can't forget the Philadelphia fever of the major indoor soccer league. And if you remember our episode uh, number 103, a couple of years back with the great Ed Tepper, we uh, remember some of the uh, origination story, the uh, sport, the modern day version of the indoor ver uh, game, the uh, major indoor soccer league version actually got its start in 1974 when the then uh, outdoor uh, Philadelphia Adams played a couple of exhibition games against a touring uh, uh, Red Army team from the then Soviet Union. And that became the genesis for what became not only the Philadelphia Fever and the MISL in the spectrum, but also the league itself. Uh, Earl Foreman, again, making an appearance as all part of that. The Philadelphia Bulldogs of Roller Hockey International for a couple of years, et cetera, et cetera. And this is just a part of a, a gigantic tableau of great stories from our guest this week, Lou Scheinfeld. He, the uh, author of a wonderful memoir, uh, largely that of uh, his partnership uh, with the aforementioned Ed Snyder, uh, uh, Philadelphia Eagles and 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 Spectacore and the Spectrum and, and all uh, uh, the Flyers and all kinds of stuff in Philadelphia sports. The book is called Blades, Bands, and Ballers, How Flash and Cash, Flash being Lou Scheinfeld, Cash being... Uh, Mr. Snyder, Ed Snyder, rescued the Flyers and created Philadelphia's greatest showplace. And of course, that greatest showplace is the spectrum. And that is the uh, the genesis and the focus of our conversation uh, this week with our guest, Lou Scheinfeld, uh, not only the author of that book, but also the founder. And it's not fully uh, out there yet, but it's called the Museum of Sports. And uh, at the museumofsports.org, themuseumofsports.org, you can learn more about not only all the memories uh, from the spectrum, but the uh, hopefully the continuation of those memories in a physical form with a museum dedicated to the fan of 
professional sports. Um, we get into all of that and more uh, in our conversation with Lou Scheinfeld coming up in a few moments time. This is one treat of an episode, just memory after memory after we could have gone on forever. Uh, it's a fantastic memory. If you're from Philadelphia, you remember the spectrum, you went to a concert there, you you saw the, the flyers uh, or the 76ers either in person or on television. Hell, look, Kate Smith, she started off our episode. I almost forgot. Um, I, I may not be politically correct anymore, but uh, for the sake of posterity and for um, uh, for history's sake, I think it's important uh, to remember, uh, as we did in the beginning of a little episode here, uh, that was the live, a live, a significant and uh, a memorable live performance of uh, of Kate Smith, who became, as we'll hear how in a few moments with Lou, uh, she became essentially the lucky charm for the Philadelphia Flyers for a good part of the 1970s, including their run uh, to the Stanley Cup, Stanley Cup that uh, in in the 70s. Um, she uh, was essentially the uh, 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 the voice that uh, uh, essentially became uh, the winning ways of the Flyers every time her recording of God Bless America was played. And in this particular clip was from a Stanley Cup play- playoff game against the Bruins, uh, May 19th in 1974. Uh, they rolled her out there, uh, out on the, onto the ice and uh, standing ovation. And there was that live rendition of God Bless America. One of the sort of uh, iconic events and memories uh, in the, the life of this uh, America's uh, show place known as the Spectrum. Just part of the story that we're going to get into with Lou in just a moment. Let's uh, give you a, uh, a kind promotional message, shall we, from one of our great sponsors. Uh, this week, we're going to roll it up and put it out there for streakersports.com. Streakersports.com, the purveyors of uh, a sports culture. That's what they'd like to say. Purveyors of sports culture, streakersports.com. And um, how about celebrating Philadelphia? Maybe some of the teams that played in the legendary spectrum. Well, you're going to be uh, taken care of and then some at streakersports.com. When you go into the Philadelphia, uh, Pennsylvania uh, section, uh, you'll find lots of great memories of Philadelphia, including uh, a couple of teams that played in said spectrum, like the Philadelphia Wings, aforementioned, the 1974 version, the original version. Great original logo T-shirt there uh, for you at uh, streakersports.com. The Philadelphia Bulldogs of Roller Hockey International, the 1994 version and logo there. Boy, you could you could surprise and impress your friends from Philadelphia there with that shirt for sure. And even the 1976 Super Series T-shirt commemorating the visit of the Russian national team against the uh, the Broadway, uh, uh, sorry, the Broad Street Bullies, Broadway, my goodness, Broad Street Bullies, the Philadelphia Flyers. What a series that was and what a memorable uh, event that was taking place at the Spectrum. All of those memories and more, Philadelphia and tons of other cities, tons of other leagues, tons of other teams. Tons of other great sports memories, in particular in T-shirt form, but all kinds of other garb, too, for you at streakersports.com. And the promo code, yes, can't forget the promo code. It's good seats for 15% off all of your purchases. It's the holidays just right around the corner, friends. What better way than to use that promo code good seats at streakersports.com 
and uh, enjoy 15% off all of your holiday purchases. Uh, and we thank Streaker Sports for their continued sponsorship of our show. We cannot appreciate it more. And uh, we uh, encourage you now to sit back, relax, kick up your feet, and enjoy this wonderful romp into the past, our memories of the Spectrum, Philadelphia's uh, entertainment uh, show, pay, show place, he says. Uh, let's uh, dial it back and remember, shall we? Here it comes, our conversation with Lou Scheinfeld we had just last week. Please, as always, enjoy. For our audience who's not familiar with sort of the Philadelphia area and the sports scene there over the years, who give a give our audience a sense of who you were during sort of the uh, uh, beginning times, I guess, of this story. And I guess that's the pre Ed Snyder days, because uh, you were in journalism, I think, prior to kind of getting enmeshed in, in into the story. Yeah. That's correct. And uh, my birthday is on Thanksgiving this week. Uh, I'll be 86. Uh, it's a number I can't accept. Uh, but um, I go back way back. And uh, uh, it's funny because we have a famous Pat Stakes place in Philadelphia that they always show on the NFL broadcast, the national telecast out of Philadelphia. Pat's King of Steaks, it's a cheesesteak. It's delicious. Uh, we, we live on these things. It's better than breast milk in, in Philadelphia. And uh, I took my uh, wife there um, many, many, many years ago when I first met her before we were even married. And the guy behind the counter, he said, didn't you used to be somebody? And <laughs> so it ties in with what you're saying. I, I've been around a long time and uh, uh, I was in journalism uh, um, growing up. All I wanted to be was a reporter uh, growing up. Uh, I grew up in a candy store. Greatest life in the world. We had newspapers, Philadelphia Bulletin, Philadelphia Daily News, The Inquirer, The Record. Uh, a couple other newspapers came in in all sorts of editions all day long. And uh, I was uh, lucky to be able to look at these newspapers and, of course, fold them up carefully and put them back so we could sell them. And um, uh, I, I just grew up in, in an era when uh, sports, baseball, baseball was king. So uh, I got I became a huge sports fan. My parents weren't at all. And um, I, I got a job and uh, I went to Temple University and majored in journalism. Now it's called sports marketing or uh, media or digital something or other. And um, my first job out of Temple was writing obituaries for the Trenton Times. And sure. I graduated. Well, that's, that's like, that was the old training ground, frankly, for all great journalists. That and, and sort of the, the local, uh, uh, you know, police blotter uh, beat. That's exactly right. And uh, in a few short months, I, I was named a city hall reporter. And it, and uh, I would do that from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. And then I was crime reporter. And uh, the reporters, our beat men, would call in from the police station, the fire stations and other places uh, in Trenton and in the uh, hinterlands around Trenton. And I would write the crime stories. And uh, you did everything. And I went from there. I went to the Doylestown, Pennsylvania Intelligencer, uh, where I had the privilege of uh, sitting next to uh, James Mishner, uh, a guy who uh, wound up uh, was actually writing his book, Hawaii. But sure. he was an old newspaper man, newspaper man from Kansas City, and he liked to write in a newspaper office. So he would come in every day and sit across from me and write. 
So I went from there to the Courier Post in Camden, New Jersey, and then finally to my dream job at the Philadelphia Daily News, uh, a circulation paper tabloid of 300 and some thousand back in that day, greatest sports department in the United States, and they assigned me to City Hall. And uh, from City Hall, I met Jerry Wellman, the owner of the Eagles, and Ed Snyder. All right. So let's let's start there. Right. So the Eagles, uh, not the band, of course, the uh, Philadelphia football uh, franchise of of uh, of of great repute and some kind sometimes ill repute, depending on uh, <laughs> what time of the season and if Santa Claus is in the building. Um, give us a sense of, of how you stumble across these guys and this team. And then obviously the leap into let's call it their world. Cause you're, you know, you're a city reporter, right? You're not even in the sports department yet. Right. right. How, does, was, how does this come about? It, it was fate. It really is fate. Uh, yeah. Right place, right time or taking advantage of an opportunity. Uh, I covered politics, not sports, but I'm a huge sports fan. So, um, uh, Jerry Wallman and Ed Snyder come uh, swashbuckling into Philadelphia from Washington, D.C. These two young guys in their 30s. Wallman's 36. He's worth $36 million. He buys the Eagles for $5.5 million. And this is and what, I'm sorry, this is what year, Lou? This is uh, a long time ago. That's uh, 1963. Very good. 1963. And uh, I had just gotten the job with the Daily News, and they assigned me to City Hall. And uh, this wonderful, exciting duo of Ed Snyder and Jerry Wallman, uh, Wallman owned the team. Snyder had a little piece of it. He was executive vice president, but he was totally in charge of the, the organization, the Philadelphia uh, Eagles organization. Wallman was a developer, and he was all over the United States doing his job. Snyder was a very sharp CPA. And uh, moved up here from Washington at Wallman's behest. And um, uh, I didn't know them. I just thought, wow, these are cool guys and all to come into Philadelphia. Because Philadelphia, somebody wrote, a uh, Philadelphia reporter wrote that uh, Jerry Wallman was like a chrome guitar in a window of old 19th century violins. <laughs> that's how that's how staid Philadelphia was. So um, I'm covering City Hall, and I come across this court case, and it's uh, uh, Jerry Wallman is suing the city of Philadelphia, uh, and specifically Mayor James H.J. Tate, uh, because the Eagles had an exclusive professional football license to play in the proposed new stadium, which turned out to be Veterans Stadium in South Philadelphia several years later. But Mayor Tate was a bit of a a political animal. And on the side, unbeknownst to anyone, he was courting an American Football League franchise in conjunction with Madison, Madison Square Garden. So they called Jerry Wallman in to Mayor Tate's office. And they said to him, listen, uh, you're new in Philadelphia. We're going to tell you how it works. And this is all in Jerry Woolman's words in his book, uh, The World's Richest Man. And he said that Jim Tate said to him, uh, we have a new lease for you. Uh, it's double your rent and it's a different stadium. It's going up over the tracks at 30th Street, uh, where uh, uh, Reading Railroad, where the uh, Amtrak was going to be. And uh, uh, you're going to sign it. And he said, why would I do that? And they said, because you're playing at Franklin Field, which is owned by the University of Pennsylvania and on its campus, and we can force Penn to kick you out. So you have no place to go. 
Jerry Wallman may have come from a small grocery store up in Shenandoah, PA, but he didn't just fall off the back of a turnip truck. And he looked at these guys and he said, uh, I'm not signing anything and I'm leaving. And he walked out. He went to a pay phone. Remember them? And he called, he called, um, Bob Carpenter, the owner of the Eagles. And he said, Bob, you just sold Connie Mack Stadium where the Phillies played and the A's used to play Philadelphia Athletics. And the Eagles played there many years before they moved to Franklin Field on the Penn campus. And he said, do you still own it? And Bob Carpenter said, no, we sold it to a hedge fund in New York. Several months ago, he said, give me the name. I want to call those people in 10 minutes. He makes a deal on the phone with these New York people to buy Connie Mack Stadium for a little over five hundred thousand dollars. And he calls Bob Carpenter and he says, I'm going to move the Eagles into Connie Mack Stadium. We are going to be co-tenants. You can play there for as long as you want at no rent. And we will build our own stadium someplace. And you and I can be partners. And Bob Carpenter said, wonderful. I just love it. So uh, I covered a press conference at uh, the Eagles offices uh, at that time. And Jerry Wallman said what Mayor Tate was doing. And I wrote some stories about Jim Tate after digging into it and finding that he did have some kind of interest in this team. And there were whispers, uh, yet never printed or proven, that he might benefit if this AFL team came in. Blew it up. Jerry Wallman fell in love with me. Ed Snyder couldn't do enough for me. They offered me jobs here, there, there, there. I was not interested in leaving journalism until they said, we are going to apply for a franchise in the National Hockey League. If we get it, we need somebody to help run it, and we're, we have to build a new stadium, new arena. Would you be interested? I said, wow, how do you turn this down? So I said, if you get it, I'm in. Three weeks later, Ed Snyder called me. He said, we got it. Are you in? I said, yes, I'm in. So you're you're essentially seen, I guess, as a, as a – I guess they felt you as a – uh, uh, an objective reporter, shall we say, or somebody who had brought light to the situation that made it more favorable for them to kind of get what they needed for the Eagles and then perhaps uh, onward. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I was very careful. Uh, I'm a pretty ethical guy uh, as much as I can try to be in this world. Uh, but they took me out to dinner. I paid my share. And believe me, it hurt my wallet a lot more than theirs. These guys were millionaires. and uh, But I had to do that. They invited me to uh, spring training at Hershey Park, the Eagles, uh, not spring training, but the uh, Eagles uh, preseason. And uh, they gave me $5 to take my kids on rides. I gave it back to them. I said, I can't do that. So I, I tried to show that it, while I believed what was right, uh, you couldn't own me. And uh, I could never let that happen to me until this day. Uh, that's the way I feel. So, Let's put now this into context, right? So, so how does this idea of a Philadelphia NHL franchise come about? How is it sort of revealed to you? Because as, as listeners of this show certainly know, we've we've gone pretty deep into the quote unquote great expansion in the late '60s of the NHL. It was years and years after, arguably, you know, later than a lot of its other sort of pro sports uh, competitors, so to speak, or, or brethren. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for why the NHL was only six clubs at the time. But but Philadelphia, you know, had been 
toyed with for a, a lot of different sort of uh, opportunities uh, along the decades, but nothing really materialized. And, and certainly as a, a minor league uh, franchise uh, did, did pretty well for itself. But how is this idea of an NHL franchise, uh, you know, made clear to you and, and how the, what is the, the role of the facility as part of that? Because the one that didn't exist, right? Well, Philadelphia was a non, basically a non-hockey town when it comes to NHL level. We did have a team here in 1930-31 owned by a boxer, a Philadelphia boxing champion who had retired by the name of Benny Bass. And he owned a restaurant in Philadelphia and he uh, brought in the uh, uh, National Hockey League franchise called the Quakers, Philadelphia Quakers. And they, they set the worst record in the NHL, uh, in its history until the California Golden Seals came in in the 1967 expansion and uh, broke that record by having a, a worse one loss record. So um, our job, my job was to sell hockey in a non, basically a non-hockey town. And Philadelphia was never expected to get a franchise in this first go around. This was 1966 when the NHL had six teams, I think back since 1942 and uh, was not interested in expansion. Clarence Campbell was a crusty president of the National Hockey League. He did not want teams in America. Uh, he, he did not want Philadelphia. Uh, but, but the league owners said to him, Hey, all these other leagues, NFL, uh, the NBA, MLB, they're, they're expanding and they're getting big TV contracts. We're just a little small six team league and we can't get these big contracts. We need to expand. We need to get teams in the eastern part of the United States, in the middle, like with St. Louis and out west in California. And Clarence Campbell uh, tried to talk them out of it, but the owners were all about money. They weren't purists, and they finally decided in 1966 that in 1967 they would expand from six teams to 12. And Philadelphia didn't have a shot until Jerry Wallman and Ed Snyder made their presentation to the board, and they were the board was blown away with those two guys. They were so impressive. And uh, Baltimore and Vancouver would have been ahead of us but neither of which got the nod because Jerry Woolman said, I will build a 15,000 seat stadium uh, arena, indoor arena, state of the art. And I will, I will guarantee you that this hockey team will go over. And uh, I think uh, one of the, I think the owner of Detroit Red Wings said, we don't want Philly. Philly's a lousy sports town. But Bill Jennings, the owner of the Rangers, believed in Ed Snyder and Jerry Wallman and knew them basically through their NFL days uh, as winners. And uh, they put it through. So we were amazed. And Baltimore was made the first alternate if we forfeited. And Vancouver would have been next. So they would have been number seven and eight. How does this facility come into being? Is it? Is it uh, is it essentially in process or committed to be in process before the NHL awards the franchise or was it vice versa? I'm not sure what you mean. So which came first, the 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 groundbreaking for this soon to be known as Spectrum or was it the NHL franchise being granted? 
Oh, that there would have been no groundbreaking for some arena if the NHL had not awarded a team because part so, of the so the league uh, the league was was truly betting on the on 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 these guys then that to come correct. through. Exactly, exactly right. And I got to tell you, Jerry Wallman, who I loved, Ed Snyder, who I loved till the day he died, wonderful, wonderful guys. Uh, they were like Damon and Pythias. They were partners. Uh, they, they, they complimented each, complimented each other magnificently. But unfortunately, like in partnerships and marriages, sometimes things go a little sour. And they had a terrible falling out after they got the franchise and after the Spectrum. Well, it wasn't even called the Spectrum. And it was called uh, the fire. It was called the Philadelphia Hockey Club and the new arena. So even before that all happened, they started to have this breakup. Interesting. But but you're in the middle of all this. And obviously, with the journalistic chops and the corporate communications uh, halo that sort of probably uh, uh, precedes you as you walk down the hallways. Um, maybe give our audience a little bit of a sense of sort of how these names come about that we all sort of know now, but we take maybe for granted, especially the name of this new facility. Uh, the, it's a pretty, pretty interesting <laughs> little dynamic here that you, that you had a hand in, in helping name this place. Well, I, I uh, walked that tightrope there between Jerry Wallen and Ed Snyder. And like I said, I loved them both. And they respected that. They understood that I, you know, and I was trained as a reporter to be objective. So I, I loved them both. And um, uh, we needed to name the team and we needed to name the arena. And uh, before we named the uh, team, uh, and the building was now under construction and we're on a tight schedule. We got we got 14 minutes, uh, 14 months from the day that the franchise was announced till we opened our first game in uh, October of 1967. That's insane. So, so I went down to the building uh, in my mud boots and a helmet, a uh, construction hat, and walked through with a, a representative of our design firm, a guy by the name of Bill Becker, who I had gone to Temple University with here in Philadelphia. And uh, I said, listen, we, we got to come up with a name that it's going to blow people away. It can't be named after any dead person. It can't be named after a president. It can't be named after a war. You know, there's enough of that around. We need something dynamic, something short, something alliterative. Uh, something that's never been done before. And we start throwing out names, super, uh, superb, uh, uh, stadium, super califragilistic, uh, uh, superior. And the name Spectrum popped up. Bill says he got it. He came up with it. I, he probably did. I don't remember, but I said, Spectrum, Spectrum. I, I'm not sure what that means exactly. Uh, I said, but if it's close, that's going to be the name I'm going to push. And I go back to my office. And I pull out this, I don't pull out, I pull over this huge Webster dictionary that most schools and offices had sitting on a wooden table open because it was like thousands of pages thing. You couldn't even lift it. It was so heavy. And I, I switch through, you know, swing through all the pages. I get to the S's, I get to S-P-E-C and I see spectrum images, which form displays colors emanating from the prism. Everything colorful under the sun. I said, that's us. That's us. That's what we're going to do. We're going to present all these colorful things. It's going to be called the spectrum. Uh, 
Okay, so you discover this idea and you put the sort of the the the, the legs behind it. Um, but there was another name floating around that that others were enamored with that that you had to compete with. No, that is correct. It was um, my boss. I was vice president of the new sports arena and the hockey team. And Hal Freeman, a very nice guy. Everybody loved Hal. I loved. I, I don't know if I loved him, but I liked him a lot. A good guy, but not a creative thinker. And uh, he was working for the Eagles before I came on board with the new uh, project. So they made him president of the new arena and they made me vice president. So, and in fact, I reported to him, but I, I didn't really, um, uh, like I said, nice guy, but not very creative. So he was um, determined to have the building named the Keystone Arena. Now, Pennsylvania is known as the Keystone State because in the original colonies, Pennsylvania's kind of held everything together to vote, uh, to state, to stay, uh, as a union. And, um, if you know, a, a keystone stone is a stone that sits in the middle of an arch and supports all the other stones. So, um, I thought Keystone Arena, man, that's, so, um, I, I said, well, let's put it up to the owners and, uh, and Snyder and all these guys, the architects and the lawyers. Let's see what they think. So I went to the dictionary or rather the phone book and I saw there were 63 Keystone companies in the Philadelphia area, including the Keystone Pickle Works, the Keystone Tonsorial Power. That's a, a barbershop nowadays and the Keystone Massage Power. So, uh, <laughs> which was hidden under the Walt Whitman Bridge at the, in South Philadelphia. Uh, it's kind of discreetly. And I looked up there. I couldn't find one prism company in the, in Pennsylvania, New Jersey or Delaware, not one. So I, we scheduled a meeting to make the presentations. How I was going to present Keystone Arena. I was going to present Spectrum. But nobody knew the names yet. And um, I'm called into a meeting uh, when at Jerry Wallman's in town with about 12 other executives. And um, I make my pitch. And I said, the Spectrum. Uh, and they said, what's that? Uh, somebody said, that, is that something that uh, a gynecologist uses? I said, no, that's a speculum. They <laughs> said, is that something you spit in? I said, no, that's a spittoon. So <laughs> uh, it wasn't an easy sell, as Yikes. you could tell. Uh, and nobody named buildings with colorful names. So um, I, I said, uh, I went into my bit about only um, no, no spectrums in tri the tri-state area, but the Keystone. I said, the Keystone Arena is kind of interesting because we already have a logo. I had gone to a, 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 a gas station and they have these Keystone uh, inspection stations hanging outside. And I found a, found one that was all rusted and I borrowed it and I took it to this meeting. I said, look, if we go Keystone, we already have the logo. Here it is. It's all over the place. It's already, well, that was heavy handed, but as a, as a, uh, as a detective once told me in Philadelphia, you want to win a fight, you kick the guy right between his legs, fight over. Okay. So <laughs> it became the spectrum. So, yeah, it sounds like a, a, an uphill battle, but uh, you must have been not only relieved, but that it probably opened the door uh, to your further creative juices to to create. I, it became essentially a, a literal a banner of under which you could 
not just have a hockey team, obviously the, the, the lead story, but uh, you, it sounds like you, and and then by, by uh, default management was recognizing that there's a whole bunch more than just a hockey team that could be brought to life in this state of the art arena. Well, we needed, we needed the circus, uh, which played the arenas in those days. We needed the ice shows. Uh, we needed boxing, wrestling, roller derby, uh, indoor tennis, uh, you name it. We needed it, but we needed the 76ers. Yeah. And, explain, uh, explain that because uh, I think people who don't, you know, sort of remember the 76ers were, uh, already entrenched in the city. Um, h- how did they sort of get romanced uh, by you or well, by them or both? Well, they weren't interested in coming in. Uh, a wonderful man by the name of Irv Kozlov owned the team. He was a silent partner uh, to a very colorful uh, lawyer in Philadelphia by the name of Ike Richmond. And Ike Richmond uh, uh, and Kozlov, uh, well, let me back up a second, that the the Warriors were in, in Philadelphia. Philadelphia Warriors were the original NBA team. And um, they were owned uh, by a gentleman who uh, uh, sold them to San Francisco. And they are your San Francisco uh, Golden State Warriors today. And uh, we didn't have a team for a year. Uh, no NBA team in Philadelphia in 19, I don't know, 50s now. Uh, and... Uh, Irv uh, Kozlov and Ike Richmond got together and bought the Syracuse Nationals from Syracuse, New York, moved them to Philadelphia, renamed them the 76ers through a con- contest. So now we got this team and they have Will Chamberlain and they have a few other pretty good darn players and they win the NBA championship um, the year before the Spectrum opens. So uh, Ike Richmond, unfortunately, who I never really got to know, and I wish I had, he died of a heart attack sitting behind the 76ers bench at a Celtics uh, 76ers playoff game. Uh, On TV, his family at home saw him kill over. And uh, Eric Kosoff inherits the team. And he, he was a reluctant owner, very sweet, very sweet man who I got to know very well and a gentleman. And, but he was not a team owner. And all of a sudden he's got this team. So he is very happy with the 76ers who have just won a championship uh, while we're getting ready to open. They're playing at the convention hall. Uh, in West Philadelphia, which was owned by the city of Philadelphia. And uh, they're also playing some games at the old arena at 46th and Market, which closed after we opened it, a decrepit old building, and an occasional game at the world-famous collegiate uh, cathedral of basketball. The Palestra. The Palestra, sure. right. So um, we needed, we felt we had to get them in. And I felt as a fan a uh, big basketball fan, they had to be in. Uh, but Irv Kosloff was very conservative. And he said to us in several meetings, I don't need a fancy new building. I don't need high rent. I don't need fancy offices or locker rooms. I'm very happy where I am. So Ed Snyder and I had three or four meetings with Irv Kosloff and his attorney, uh, Nate Nathaniel Buden, and they were very um, cordial, but they, they didn't want to budge. So finally, it says to me, uh, listen, uh, call these guys in. Uh, it's a take it or leave it meeting. Here's our deal. I said, okay, I'll call them in. 
He said, I mean it. Take it or leave it. If they don't take it, we don't want them. He said, we'll survive. And Ed was that type of guy. He he was a ballsy guy with a stiff backbone that could will things to happen. And he was super confident and not cocky, but he, he just could get things done. And he knew. So, And he's in his 30s. <laughs> so uh, we called him in for this final meeting. And uh, I said, uh, we're going back and forth. And it's not going very well. And Ed excuses himself to go to the uh, bathroom. And uh, the good cop, bad cop. So Irv Kozlov, who uh, liked me and, and had faith in me, said to me, look, what do you think? I said, Irv, you can't afford not to be in this building for your fans, for the city of Philadelphia, for your players. You can't be playing in some 6,500-seat decrepit old arena in West Philly. Well, we got the state-of-the-art place of 15,000 seats, and we're going to expand to 19,000 someday. You've got to be in here. He says to me, he looks at his lawyer and he nods like, okay. He didn't say it. He just nodded. Ed comes out of the bathroom. I give him the high sign with my wink. He sits down. He says, okay, where are we? Uh, Er says, um, I think uh, we're interested. But he said, I want the same deal as the flyers, your flyers got or getting in this building. Boy, Ed didn't want to do that. But before he could say anything, I said, Irv, I will give you a copy of the flyers lease. And I look at Snyder and he's like shooting daggers at me like, I said, you're going to be a co-tenant. You're going to be equal to the Flyers, and we're going to do everything for you that we're doing for the Flyers. Again, my reportage <laughs> down the middle, uh, everybody is treated fair. We uh, ethics kicked in. And he said to me, okay. And he turns to the lawyer and he said, sign. Let's sign. And that's how we got them in. And thank goodness we got them in. Well, it became quite the powerhouse, right? I mean, the two, the two major indoor uh, sports franchises. And it became, you know, I, I dare I say it, that sort of helped uh, uh, put the uh, arena on the map because it was, like you said, state of the art. Uh, and it just, frankly, probably became the, the foundation, frankly, to do all the other things that sort of the only real major uh, modern arena in the region uh, could afford, right? So if the Harlem Globetrotters are coming through, got to go to the spectrum, right? If it's if it's the Grateful Dead or Bruce Springsteen, ultimately, got to go through the spectrum, right? Uh, any new league or team, uh, the circus, et cetera, right? It's it's the spectrum, or really kind of not, you know, or or uh, yeah, very little else elsewhere. Well, that's right. That's how it eventually became known as uh, America's America's Showplace. We had more events. Then the uh, forum in Los Angeles, which had the Kings and the Lakers, we had more events in Madison Square Garden and we had lower overhead. And uh, you have to uh, people don't realize uh, a lot of people don't realize that rock concerts hadn't even started yet. FM radio was uh, in its infancy. And all of a sudden, this confluence, this marriage of uh, uh, FM rock and um, uh, concerts became a big thing. And in our first four or five years of the spectrum, I think we only had four or five concerts the whole time. And then we made a deal with Electric Factory Concerts to uh, be our concert promoters. And these guys, uh, Alan Spivak and uh, Larry Maggot, uh, were geniuses. 
they were so far ahead of the curve and still are today. They start booking, and then we start having 20, 25, 30 concerts a year. And each concert kicked off, uh, I'll tell you right now, $30,000 net to the spectrum, which was a lot of money, more than we made in a Flyers game or a Sixers game. And to this day, I feel that Larry Maggot and Alan Spivak and Herb Spivak, his brother, didn't get their due for what they did. Because as far as I was concerned, they were as important as the Philadelphia Flyers and the Philadelphia 76ers Sixers in making the spectrum a success. How so it almost feels to me like this is sort of one of the first sort of, I guess, modern arenas of its era to kind of, I wouldn't say stumble into, but almost sort of create a blueprint for, uh, let's call it facility management in, in, in particular, scheduling the calendar. Uh, and I'm guessing uh, mostly in the uh, the spring and the summer when the, uh, the two teams are not uh, playing, it becomes, hey, we've got this building that's uh, around <laughs> that needs to be filled. Um, it almost feels to me like in some respects that on the East Coast, you were kind of one of the pioneers of of multiple events and frankly, quick turnarounds, I'm guessing too, from court to ice and stage to, to something else. Right. Uh, uh, which is probably was not the art that it is today. Well, uh, it was a little bit different than back then. We had uh, nine people in the flyers office other than the uh, team personnel. Pardon me. The 76ers had seven and I'll back up a second and tell you what Eric uh, Kozlov said after he told Nate Buden to sign uh, the lease. He said, I don't need any Taj Mahal offices. I don't need a big locker room. He said, I need a room for 12 jock straps. <laughs> he said, that's all we need. So we gave, we gave him a little bigger than that because we knew they'd grow into it. But the, the Spectrum um, grew because of the rock concerts and the circuses and the ice capades, as you said. Um, and then there were cookie cutter buildings after that, uh, patterned after the Spectrum. And as the years went by, uh, we formed a company um, uh, called Spectacor, uh and another company uh, where we went out and uh, advised other people on how to grow their arenas, how to start arenas, how to book events. And we, we, we created a network of uh, we would manage your building. We would sell your ads on your scoreboard. We would run your building. We would handle your security, your ticketing, and your catering. And it turned into a very big company. And um, uh, it was one of the building blocks that made Ed Snyder uh, so dominant in the industry as a, as a visionary. So we did a lot of different things. But people kept coming to us and saying, how do you do this? And how do you? So that's when we started this company. And we said, we'll show you, but hire us. What was just out of curiosity, was the uh, Nassau Veterans Memorial Coliseum one of those? Because I, I was growing up as a kid going to some New York Arrows games and Islander games. Uh, it, it does strike me as being somewhat similar in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of construction and, and lack of, uh, I want to say tears, but sort of the sort of open or, or am I just imagining that? No, you're spot on. That was our first tenant. Uh, no I mean, kidding. Our, our first, that was our first um, client because they came to us. They kept asking us questions. And Ed Snyder said to me, why are we giving away this advice? 
Uh, and I wasn't the only one. We had several other people in the organization, you know. Uh, and uh, we said, well, because we're nice guys. He says, stop being nice guys. Let's start a company. He said, I'm not going to do it. He said, you guys want to do it? Start a company and we'll all share in it. And um, uh, that's what we did. And the Nassau Coliseum, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the owner's name. I can't think of it now. Wonderful guy. Uh, he, in fact, he sold us uh, Julius Irving from the Nets. Uh, he uh, So they were our first sign-up. And from there, it just snowballed. We got dozens and dozens of, of uh, not only arenas and teams, but cities hiring us to run their convention centers. Yeah, interesting, right? I'm, I'm just trying. My mind is trying to go through some of the ones that I remember from from the era, right? I, I, I'm guessing Cincinnati, uh, the uh, Riverfront Coliseum, uh, a lot of others that are sort of uh, very similar. So maybe you could describe. I, I'm, I'm sure you know fans in Philly know this like by the back of their hand, but um, can you describe a little bit of sort of how the arena was uh, shaped and um, uh, and set, right? Because there was there were no. Um, I don't know, obstacles, right? It was a pretty clear line of sight. There really kind of wasn't sort of a, a bad seat in the house kind of thing, right? That's fairly, fairly new and unique for, for arenas of the era. That's, that's, uh, that's right. Because, uh, this, uh, the city of Philadelphia had a dump uh, down at Broad and Patterson. And, uh, when I say a dump, I mean, that's where they dump trash. <laughs> and, um, across the street was a drive-in theater, which became Veterans Stadium. Uh, and then Citizen Bank Park. And, uh, there was a, uh, hoagie shop and a bowling alley. And, uh, we were the dump across the street for Broad and Patterson. And the city said, look, we'd like to develop this into a complex. Uh, we're not sure what's going to be in the future, but if you'd like to put your building down there, uh, there was a wonderful guy. And I'm, I keep talking about wonderful people, but there's a lot of them out there that helped us. Paul Dortona, city council president, who I covered as a reporter, and we had a very good rapport. And he said, you build it down there. We'll clear all the uh, paperwork and all the red tape. Um, we'll, you, you'll, you'll just sign a lease and you'll pay us for the ground over the years. Uh, and uh, so we, we, they only gave us four and a half acres. Today, four and a half acres is uh, is a section in a, in a new arena. Uh, these new arenas are like spaceships and casinos and shopping malls all rolled into one. So we only had four and a half acres. That's not a lot to build a building with 15, 14,000 seats that you can expand to 20 later on. So every seat was close to the action. Uh, it was steep. And we only had two levels. We started out with 14,000 seats, but every one of them was fantastic. There wasn't a post, uh, anything. There was no such thing as obstructed seats. You could hear the players grunting. You could hear the squeaks, the snakes squeaking. You could hear the, 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 the pad when the puck hit the goalie in the chest. And it was fantastic. And by accident, because of this, it was great for concerts. The first few concerts we had, we just plugged them into the amps, the, the public speakers for our public address announcer. And then uh, concerts start bringing in their own amps. And pretty soon it became very complex, but it became a fantastic building to watch an event. It became a fantastic building to uh, hear a concert. And almost every group in the world knew about the spectrum and would not play 
the East Coast without coming to the spectrum. Yeah, it's interesting. It almost feels to me like it it is almost kismet in terms of timing, right? With the sort of the the album rock AOR FM formatted kind of freeform uh, sort of dynamic on on the airwaves, right? That and this facility, and it's in its uh, at the time relatively unique and low roofed structure. Uh, the the acoustics, right? Uh, I mean, uh, either by design or unwittingly. Uh, became almost of a template, frankly, of how sort of the modern rock concert indoors uh, was shaped. And you were kind of at the heart of it. Uh, I think unwittingly was the word, because as Ed <laughs> Snyder said, when he opened the Wells Fargo Center, a uh, uh, I forget how much it cost, but it was a lot of money. And the Spectrum only cost $6 million to open. Uh, there, uh, there are published reports of 12 million, but I never understood that. And I worked there. It only cost 6 million. Um, he said, uh, we have spent millions and millions on sound at, at the, uh, new arena, which was then called the Core States Arena. Now it's the Wells Fargo Arena, uh, Wells Fargo Center. And, uh, he said, we didn't spend 10 cents. Not a dime, not a dime on sound at the spectrum. We lucked out. It turned out to be, it was just kismet. It was just unbelievable. So we had a lot of, a lot of lucky things going for us. We had a lot of pluck. Uh, we had a lot of balls, you know, but at the same time, we had a lot of luck going for us. It was also one of the first uh, arenas of its kind to have a, a scoreboard like with, with a message board uh, and sort of some of some of that dynamic, too. Well, um, having been a fan and having gone to high school games and the old arena and seeing these little scoreboards that just had little lights on them and only uh, the score and maybe for hockey, a penalty, who had the penalty and how many minutes. And they were no different than what you had in your high school. And I said to Ed Snyder, you know, we, 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 we have to be first class. I said, if we're going to have a scoreboard, uh, I want to design it. I'm not a designer, but I knew what I wanted. I wanted something that didn't exist, which was a picture in the middle of the scoreboard. So I flew out to Chicago to the scoreboard company, uh, American Scoreboard or whatever it was called. And I told them what I wanted. And they said, well, there is no such thing. All, every, all the teams in Montreal, Toronto, Boston, Detroit, Chicago, New York, they all have this I said, that's a high school scoreboard. I don't want it. They said, well, what do you want? I said, I want something where you can see pictures. And I don't know how you do it, but try to figure it out. Maybe not fancy pictures, you know. So they came up with what they called a solid lamp matrix. So that was a square in the middle of the scoreboard made up completely of bulbs, white bulbs against a black background. And you could put messages up there by manipulating the bulbs through a computer and computers were kind of new. They weren't really called computers. They were just called, uh, I don't know, it was, uh, something that they gave you that you could type on. <laughs> and uh, uh, we wound up hiring this wonderful, wonderful young kid from Temple University and a, a black kid. And, and the reason I say black at this time is that that was unheard of to even hire somebody, especially a college student, uh, to be involved in a, a project like this. He turned out to be a genius, our salvation. And uh, he figured out how to make stick figures of hockey players, how to put messages 
uh, by by manipulating, not not going up physically and turning each bulb, but from his console, he figured it out. This guy, this guy should have been at NASA. What a wonderful guy! Eventually, so we, that even included uh, some uh, some primitive forms of video too, right? You could well, well, not at first, not at first, and. Uh, um, uh, we, we had to wait for certain things to evolve in that world, uh, till uh, more software became available. And as time went by, yes, it, it did become a very, very crude video. It was black and white. It was stop, action, move, picture, boom, blink, blink, blink. And the fans loved it. I loved it. Yeah, it was, yeah. Nobody was doing this and it was incredible. Yeah, that's uh, that's I, okay. So let's um, let's step back for a second. So I, you know, besides the the Flyers uh, and the uh, the Seventy Sixers, obviously the two major tenants. Uh, I'm staring right now at a poster uh, that was out in the late '60s, early '70s, called "The House That Rock Built." You're clearly uh, gaining a a reputation as being uh, a rock friendly venue and, and that of a a world class one. That what what events generally uh, kind of stand out in your mind, either musically or some moments from sports and, and, and maybe even from events and sports, not the 76ers or the, uh, or the Flyers? Well, the, the first concert I went to, uh, well, we opened with the two-day jazz festival on September 30th and October 1st of 1967. That was wonderful. Um, but the first concert I really went to and enjoyed was the Rolling Stones in 19, what to say, in the 60s, 1969. Uh, my mistake was uh, my box was too close to the speakers. Greatest concert I almost never heard. <laughs> uh, I, I went deaf. I went deaf in both ears for two days. Uh, my right ear never came back fully. My left ear finally recovered. It was the greatest concert I had ever seen. I have seen every Rolling Stones concert since then, not just at the uh, uh, Spectrum, but at the Wells Fargo Center and other venues in the East Coast. But the, the, the Chicago came in and Prince came in and um, The Who, uh, you, you name it. It was We had so many wonderful, wonderful concerts and uh, it was just so exciting. And that brought a different crowd. They weren't sports fans necessarily, but they loved the spectrum. I mean, they might have seen a hockey game on TV, which was black and white and terrible because you couldn't even see the puck. But they came to the building and they came back for other events. The, the ice shows, uh, the uh, uh, circus, seeing the kids, seeing the kids, uh, their eyes wide open, thrilled at this. And look, tickets, I mean, for a Frank Sinatra concert in the set, 1972, it was $15 for first row. Uh, the 76ers first row was $9. When I became president of the 76ers, I, I had the temerity to raise the first row to $10. People went nuts. <laughs> I raised it $1. Today, there are thousands of dollars for those seats. But we had so many things. We drew so many different demographics. If you walked out of the building like I did after work every day at 6 or 7 o'clock, 
car. You could almost tell by the people in the parking lot waiting to come in, what show was it going to be? Uh, was it Johnny Cash and they're all dressed in their Western stuff? It was it wrestling and they're all like uh, jumping on each other? Is it uh, uh, gothic? Is is it um, uh, the Philadelphia Orchestra? Uh, different crowd, different crowd. Security had to handle it. We had to handle it. Uh, thank goodness we never had any major, major incidents like just happened in Houston last week or in Cincinnati years ago uh, at the arena when the Who played where people got trampled. Um, and, you know, you, you got to be lucky. You also have to be smart with your planning. But we had literally the Spectrum had every event under the sun. All right. Well, let's get to some of the more uh, odd ones. And so I'm going to test your memory and see if maybe if any of these sort of stand out. So uh, I can't sort of let this conversation go without asking you about the uh, the advent of of Kate Smith singing the national anthem. Excuse me, not the national anthem. God bless America. That's our national anthem. Yes, it well, is. Well, <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. I, sorry. Sorry, you Flyers fans. Um, did you you had a hand in that? I'm guessing. Well, I, I did. Uh, I think again, fate, luck. Um, uh, during the Vietnam War in the late sixties, um, I was uh, really bothered by the fact that a lot of fans at Flyers games, and especially Seventy Sixers games, were not standing, were not paying attention to the national anthem, weren't crossing their heart, weren't taking their hats off. They were eating, they were drinking, smoking things of dubious origin, and uh, eating a hot dog. And it bothered me. And I said to Ed Snyder, listen, uh, this isn't right. Uh, you know, there's a war going on. We're patriots. Uh, we're supporting uh, America. Um, I wonder what would happen if I took, if I, <laughs> who am I, if I took the national away, uh, anthem away from our people? He said to me, you're crazy. You know, forget about it. I said, okay. But I didn't forget about it. So I thought about songs. And I thought about playing a crazy song, like some novelty song or whatever. And I went to a a used record shop in Philadelphia on a funky street called South Street, (laughs) famous by the song. And I found an old vinyl uh, uh, I don't know, 78 or whatever, 33 and a third, a big one, of Kate Smith singing God Bless America. And I I knew Kate Smith, of Kate Smith, because when I was a kid, she was the world's biggest star on the radio, the world. And my mother was in love with her. And we would listen to this as I sat behind the counter in our candy store uh, on the radio in the 40s. And um, I took it home and I uh, oh, I brought it to the Spectrum the next day, and I said to the sound operator, can you play this record for me, which I wasn't familiar with. Nobody was. And um, God, uh, Irving Berlin had written God Bless America back in the 30s, maybe 1929, but he never published it. He put it away. Kate Smith went to him uh, during World War II and said, listen, our, our nation is in low spirits. Uh, do you have a song? Can you write me a song that would lift us, lift us up? Because she was a fantastic patriot. She loved America. She was America's songbird. She raised personally over $500 million in war bonds, traveling the whole world for America and for our troops. What a patriot. So, the electrician says to me, well, we don't play records. So I have to convert it to a reel to reel. That's how advanced we were then. So he calls me back later in the day. He says, okay, if you want to hear it. I said, yeah. So I go up into the sound room and he plays it. And I go, whoa, wow, what a song. This is awesome. I said, do me a favor. Tonight, 
Can you stay late on overtime? We'll pay you. After everybody leaves the building, the building start. Can you play it over the speakers so I can hear what it sounds in the huge auditorium? So he says, sure. Happy to get the overtime. So five thirty, six o'clock, I go out. He plays it. I sit in the first row on the ice. I sit in the last row upstairs. I sit in the corners. And uh, I hear this, God bless America. And when Kate Smith hits those last few incredibly high notes, I got the chills. I got, I started to sweat. I thought, this is the song. I'm going to play this song. So a couple of weeks go by. And I'm thinking, when can I play it? When can I play it? Should I play it? Am I going crazy or what? So uh, Toronto is coming in in a couple of days. Now, that's a big, what we call a money game. You've got a big crowd. You've got uh, the people who really like hockey. And it's going to be televised, not only uh, regionally in the United States, but all throughout Canada. Hockey night in Canada. Wow. Big coverage. A lot of TV crews. A lot of reporters from all over. So... I walk out that day at four in the afternoon and I look around and I see them stocking the concession stands and other things going on. And the cameras, you know, starting to uh, uh, pick out different things. And I said, this is it. We're going to do it. So back to my office, I called the sound booth. I said, listen, uh, at seven o'clock, we're going to play God Bless America instead of the national anthem. And the electrician, uh, I think his name was Joe. He says to me, are you kidding? I said, no, I'm serious. He said, no, you're kidding. I said, no, I'm serious. So at seven o'clock, I'm up in the super box sitting next to Ed Snyder or across from Ed Snyder, about 40 feet away. And uh, I called down to the sound booth. I said, uh, we're playing this. And uh, I called down to the uh, PA announcer. Uh, Kevin Johnson was his name because who no one hadn't started yet for a couple of years. And I said, we're going to play God Bless America tonight. Kate Smith introduced it. He said, are you kidding? I said, no. <laughs> and now I'm starting to doubt myself. So we play. At 7.05, Flyers are lined up on their blue line. Toronto's lined up on their blue line. Uh, Kevin Johnson, ladies and gentlemen, would you please rise and stand as Kate Smith sings. And before he could even say God bless America, there's this buzz in the crowd like, what that? <laughs> what the? <laughs> WC? <laughs> and Ed Snyder looks at me from way over at his seat and he's like steaming and uh it comes and the song ends at the end and people are buzzing and some are clapping some are cheering some are booing he gets up at snyder my boss (laughs) comes over to me gets in my face starts cursing me out what are you doing you I said, I told you I was going to do this. He says, yeah, but I didn't think you were crazy enough to do it. And he goes back to his seat. He's so upset. Well, the Flyers didn't win very many many games that year. But in this game, that first period, they hit, they scored, they skated. The crowd was going nuts. Fans are streaming up the aisle at the end of the first period telling Ed Snyder, what a great song. The Flyers look great. By the end of the game, we killed Toronto. We beat them into the ice. And people are now coming up at the end of the game, shaking Ed Snyder's hand because he was right on the very end. He liked to be close to the fans and saying, what a great idea, Mr. Snyder. This should be our national anthem. I look over at him, deadpan. He gets up, walks over to me, gets in my face. He says, I don't know how you did it. But keep doing it. <laughs> that was the first time 
We played Kate Smith. And then the legend was born. I mean, even to the point of, of her coming to, to major uh, crucial games over the years thereafter in person. Well, um, we played her 31 times in the first three years. And our record was 28, one and something. But she only one loss at, at, at like 32 games, three ties. So I, uh, we were trying to get her to come. Um, Jay Seidman, who was my cousin, who uh, was also our promotion director, kept calling her manager in New York and asking him to please uh, ask her to come down and sing God Bless America in person. And he said, uh, Miss Smith does not sing at hockey games. She <laughs> sings for kings, queens, the pope. <laughs> she doesn't sing in hockey games. And we couldn't get past them. But Tim, by some miracle, fate, luck, you call it, she had an uncle. <laughs> Kate Smith had an elderly uncle living in West Philadelphia who was following the good luck charm of Kate Smith in the papers. So he sends her clippings. He mails them to her. And she goes to her manager and says to him, look at these clippings. Do you think they would ever let me come down and sing? <laughs> and, and he says to her, oh, uh, well, Miss Smith, they've been asking, but I didn't think it was uh, worthy, uh, you know, your stature. She said, no, I would love to. Please arrange it. Well, he calls us back. His name was Ray. I can't think of his last name right now. Very snooty guy and protective of her. And he said, Miss Smith has deigned, deigned to uh, come to your building against my better judgment. He said, uh, make me an offer. I know you can't afford her. She gets $25,000 in appearance. Uh, make me an offer, but don't insult me. So Jay Seidman, my cousin, comes in. What should I say? I said, sell him $5,000. That's a lot of money to us in, in the 60s. And uh, he goes back and tells Ray $5,000. And Ray says, that's an insult. Uh, so uh, Jay comes back to me. I said, listen, we can't afford more than $5,000. You know, we'll keep playing the record. So uh, he tells him that's it. And he calls, he tells Kate Smith. And she says, oh, I'll take it. Let's go. I want to go down there. Well, so she came down and the funny story about her coming down, she takes the train from New York to to 30th Street Station. We pick her up. We have our limo pick her up, bring her into my office, a hug, kiss and this and that. I am thrilled. This is Kate Smith in our building. And after three years and um, it, it was the championship game, the final, the game six of the Stanley Cup finals against the Boston Bruins. And um, uh, we were up, uh, well, we were up three games to two, and we did not want to go back to Boston for game seven because that would have been tough. And if we won today, we walked together forever, as Fred Shiro said. And um, she goes into her, we, t- we take her to her dressing room, and 15 minutes later, she's back. It's five, it's five of seven now. And she says, I can't go on. And I said, why not? She said, my dress is creased it's ruined it got creased and caught in the ripper of the soup of the uh, suitcase i said don't worry about it we have an iron we have seamstress we have all kinds of things could not find an iron couldn't find sewing thread and i called my secretary maria milano whose aunt whose family lived two blocks away from the spectrum i said do you have somebody in your family she said yes my aunt Kay is a seamstress and she'll take care of this so john foreman jumps in the limousine 
with the Kate Smith priest dress, zooms over. I said, John, but in the meantime, we don't want anybody to know about this. This is a big secret. And by the time he comes out of her house with the newly ironed, sewn dress, there's 30 people in the street. It's a little narrow street in South Philadelphia. He's got a limo that says PF1, Philadelphia Flyers 1. And word was out that it was Kate Smith's dress <laughs> in this little row house. He zooms it back. We get it down to her dressing room. She puts it on. She comes out on the ice and she performs. It was electric. Amazing. And, and it just it just spun... Uh, a legend thereafter. I think uh, as of 2017, I guess when 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 uh, the song was uh, essentially retired, so to speak, for various reasons, which we could talk about some of the time. But I think the record was 100 wins, 29 losses, and five ties. That is correct. Was, when that was... song was prior to the game, I mean, just I mean, you you can't write, you can't script that story. No, you can't. I couldn't make it up. I couldn't have dreamt it up. I. Uh, it, I, just how I told you, it came about. It was a whim. It was luck. It was uh, it was good fortune. Uh, she became our good luck charm. Her the Flyers became her boys. She was at our two parades in Philadelphia. Uh, unfortunately, when she passed away, uh, what nineteen seventy nine or thereabouts, uh, Ed Snyder was a pallbearer at her uh, her funeral, and it, it's sad. It's very sad that her legacy uh, was torn down and uh, her statue was removed from the spectrum uh, from the Wells Fargo Center at this point. And uh, it's too bad. It's that uh, it's a woke society that uh, uh, cancels history rather than teach history. Uh, they tear things down. And it's very sad because this woman didn't deserve it. She was a patriot. All right. Let me ask you a couple other. I, we, I've already we've spent a great deal of time and I, there's so many other things I want to get to. We're never going to get to. But uh, just let me just throw a couple of other things and see if these uh, uh, jot your memory as well. Jog your memory. Um, I, I guess I got to ask about the Rocky movie, uh, uh, the original Rocky. Right. If people are paying attention, uh, I, I'll never forget that scene. It's probably one of my favorite scenes in the entire film is the night before the big fight. You know, Rocky Balboa is uh, somehow gotten his way into the arena and he's looking at all the uh, sort of setup and stuff and uh, just a great scene. And he sort of comes to the realization that he's just, you know, he's just basically a mark for, for this event that's going to happen in the spectrum. I don't think this uh, is the spectrum actually called out in the movie. I forgot, but how does, how does that come about that? uh, uh, What was also lightning in a bottle, right? I don't think you probably even knew that that small little movie was going to be, you know, a franchise for the ages. Well, that that's uh, that that was one of my uh, uh, not better moves. Uh, the summer that that movie was going to be made, uh, we had never heard of Sylvester Stallone. Rocky didn't exist, and Sylvester Stallone is a, a guy living in Philadelphia uh, who called the Spectrum and spoke to my booking agent Steve Greenberg about renting the Spectrum for six weeks during the summer to shoot a movie about boxing. But Steve Reinberg came to me and asked me, I said, well, how much are we going to charge him? And he says, he doesn't have any money. I said, wait a minute, what's this guy's name? Sylvester Stallone. And he has no money. He wants to build him for six weeks. A guy with no money with a funny name. What's he talking about? I said, we can't, we can't give him the building for six weeks. So that was the end of that. So a year and a half later, I'm up in New York City 
meeting with um, United Artists, who were our partners in the establishment of PRISM. And um, the, the VP of um, the, the film company said, do you, do you have some time after the meeting? I'd like to show you a short movie. I said, sure. So I, I go up into the uh, private projection room. Um, uh, I don't know where it was on Broadway, uh, 7th Avenue or whatever. And I watched this movie. It's called Rocky. And it's all about the spectrum. And it's all about Philadelphia. And I went, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This is the movie I turned down. This is this guy, Sylvester Stallone. This is going to be a hit. And that's what the United Artists said, guy said to me. I, I think it, we're going to put it up for the Academy Award. This is incredible. I said, it certainly is. And uh, I realized I blocked this. Mo- no, it was not shot at the spectrum. No, he did not walk through the spectrum. He was never in the spectrum. No one of the, none of his movies have ever been in the spectrum. They were shot in an old arena in Los Angeles called the Los Angeles Arena, I think. And um, but they we did supply them with our ushers uniforms and usherettes uniforms with uh, boxing posters with uh, pennants that said spectrum and different things uh, as a courtesy. And I have to tell you, I, I blew it. This was a mistake of international proportions. And, and Tim, to this day, and you know, there's a statue of Rocky in Philadelphia in front of the art museum, world famous art museum. You cannot go past that statue 24 seven, whether it's two in the afternoon or four in the morning and not see a line of people waiting to get their picture taken with the world famous Rocky statue. So I screwed up on that one. Oh, I, you know, I, I didn't even know that I, th- th- maybe you're breaking news here, but I, I, I thought the <laughs> mythology was, but it's, it's interesting. I, I thought for sure it was in the spectrum that it was filled. In, and I guess this is the point of you supplying those things uh, that convinced me and, and I'm sure generations of fans that it was indeed the spectrum. So Perhaps it didn't turn out all that badly in that, you know, maybe you didn't get to use the actual facility, but it certainly came across as such. Well, I'll, I'll throw this at you. Our TV announcer, radio TV announcer, along with, Stu Nahan, along with uh, Gene Hart, was Stu Nahan. Sure. And he is the announcer in the Rocky movies, sitting there calling the shots blow by blow at ringside. <laughs> Interesting. OK, how about a couple of things? So do you remember anything about indoor soccer? During your time there, the origination of it when the Soviets came to play this uh, Philadelphia Adams outdoor team and that in 74 and that generating the interest by a guy, you know, and remember uh, Earl Foreman and his buddy Ed Tepper creating a league a few years thereafter, including the Philadelphia Fever. You remember any of that? Well, I, I don't remember that game specifically, but uh, Earl Foreman was Ed Snyder's brother-in-law. Earl Foreman's wife, Phyllis, uh, both Earl and Phyllis passed away recently. Um, Earl, uh, Phyllis was Ed's older sister, Ed Snyder's older sister. Earl Foreman, I'll use the word wonderful again. What a special, special guy. And he and Eddie Tepper, uh, Earl came up with the idea of uh, expanding uh, or creating the uh, MISL, Major Indoor Soccer League. And uh, Eddie Tepper was a Philadelphia guy who uh, was very close to our organization and part of our uh, uh, planning committee and so forth. And uh, they they created the MISL and made quite a success out of it. 
And I've, I've written uh, in my book, which hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about for a few seconds, uh, Blades, Bands, and Bowlers. Uh, Earl Foreman was, was a giant, a giant in sports and uh, legality in the Washington area. He wasn't that well known in the Philadelphia area. Eddie Tepper was a, uh, is a good friend of mine till this day. Uh, Eddie Tepper was a local guy and they, they put together one heck of a program and opened the MISL and, uh, wound up owning teams of their own. Earl Foreman helped, um, negotiate the settlement between the NFL and the AFL, between the NBA and the, uh, what team? <laughs> I can't even think. Who ABA, yeah. yeah uh, the ABA, right. Thank you. And uh, he was a medic in World War II. He was an attorney for the FBI. Uh, he owned the Washington soccer team. Uh, the, the, uh, he owned the, um, uh, the, the team that drafted uh, Julius Irving, uh, and, uh, the Virginia Squires. Uh, he, he did so much in sports, and he was Ed Snyder's partner, he was Jerry Wallman's lawyer for years and years and years. And, um, I, I, I wrote a whole piece about him. He, he like, like, like Lecter Factor Conscious never got his due in Philadelphia for what he did, but he and Eddie Tepper put that together. And, uh, I, like I said, I don't specifically remember the Adams, uh, Soviet game, but, uh, I, after the show, I will definitely look it up. Well, I, I can also highly commend you to our episode 103 with the great Ed Tepper, who, uh, re- regaled us with that, with that story. I think, oh, okay. And was, was, uh, effusive in his praise of the, uh, of the spectrum. And, and frankly, that's sort of being the, the impetus for, for that league to happen. All right. Here's the other one. I'll sort of throw out there. I'm sure there's tons of others. How much do you remember, if anything, for the one year, but it seems like it was longer of world team tennis and Billie Jean King and the Philadelphia freedoms in 19, what, 74. Vividly, vividly. I remember that I, uh, we were looking for events and uh, when we heard uh, there was something called uh, world team tennis was going to try and establish franchises and uh, uh, Dick Butera, uh, uh, a, uh, he wasn't an attorney, but he was from a very political family in Philadelphia, Norristown. Uh, Dick knew, uh, Billy Jane. He knew, uh, Liz Taylor, who he invited to a, to a world tennis team game. He knew, uh, Peter Lawford. He knew, uh, the Rat Pack. Uh, and he brought Billy Jean King in. And, uh, uh, I was thrilled to meet her. Uh, Billy, I don't know if she was still Billy Jean Moffat then. Uh, and, uh, I signed them to a lease to play in the building. And, uh, uh, Billy Jean King, uh, just a fantastic person. She created that league until this day. You know, they still operate and she's still very active in it and she owns it, one of the franchises. And uh, Billy Jean King played uh, and Julie Anthony was her partner and, and on the, uh, and Bill and wound up marrying, uh, Dick Butera. Um, Billy Jean King brought in Elton John to play in an exhibition. And she said to him, uh, can you write a song? It sounds like Kate Smith sang to Irving Bruin, can you write a song? Uh, and um, Elton John wrote Philadelphia Freedoms for her, for Billie Jean King. Yeah, well, there's, he, a, there's a story, I think. I'm not sure if it's true. Maybe you can correct me or, or maybe you have some insight. Is that uh, during, I guess, before one of the matches, he, he came in into the locker room and had his little tape recorder there and played the song for her at the spectrum. I think 
Hey, 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 I believe he did. Uh, I wasn't there, but I have heard that story, and I believe it's true. He also played that day in an in exhibition game, a uh, tennis game before Billie Jean King's Freedom played. And uh, he made the mistake of going over to the crowd afterwards and shaking hands. And everybody started coming out of the stands and chasing him. And he's running around the court and around the court. And finally, I pointed to the uh, chute where the players go up to their locker room and got him out of there. But uh, Billy Jean King, what a fantastic human being. I took my daughter um, uh, several years ago to the Villanova uh, arena, Villanova, um, I forget what they call it now. And uh, the, the Freedoms were playing. And I hadn't seen Billy Jean King in 25 years. And uh, as we're walking out to leave, there's Billy Jean walking towards us. And I said, hi, Billy Jean. <laughs> Lou Shine. She said, I know who you are. Spectrum, right? I said, right. And she says, hello to me. And my da- well, my daughter was beyond <laughs> actually impressed with me for, for one of the few times. But Billy Jean, so we had the court set up on the concrete floor of the of the spectrum when the ice was gone after the fire season. And um, that's where the, they took their it was a, a synthetic court. So I'm out there and I'm trying to I'm playing with some guy there and I'm terrible. I'm terrible. I'm not a tennis player at all. Uh, and she comes over to me and she says, you don't know how to serve. Do you? I said, serve. I said, I just throw the ball up and try to hit it. Over the net, I ping it. You know, it's like ping. And she said, no, 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 let me show you how to serve. She said, throw the ball up as high as you can. She said, see the scoreboard hanging at the top of the building? Take your racket and try to hit the scoreboard with your ball. And just as you hit the ball, yank your yank your racket down, and the ball will go over the net on a backspin and land. I said, are you kidding? So I throw it up. I look at the scoreboard. I try to hit the score. I yank it down. After about four or five tries with her tutelage, it works. Billy Jean King taught me how to serve. And, of course, I didn't serve, you know, 80 miles, 90 miles um, an hour. But I got it over the net and into the into the zone. And I, that's one of the things I'm most proud of in my life, that Billy Jean King taught me how to serve. That's pretty amazing. I'm surprised it only lasted one season in Philadelphia, that uh, that team. Well, it, it was tough. You know, we had a big building. The overhead was uh, was tough, and the other teams weren't drawing. Uh, we had an annual uh, men's indoor and women's championship that sold out, and uh, we had like 64 pros, men and women, all the greatest players in the world. And I think that took a lot away from it. And, and, and indoor tennis at that time uh, for a team, a team sport, had, hadn't caught on. Uh, but Billy Jean has persevered, and over the years they've kept that league alive. And uh, they still they play in Philadelphia every year. They come in in the spring. They they played at Villanova University. They played at St. Joe's University uh, in Philly, and um, it's it's fun. She she says to the crowd, "Don't be quiet." Cheer, yell, scream, boo. <laughs> this is a fun event. You know, we, we, we have thick skin. So she made it a fun event. And those multicolored courts were, were awesome too. All right. One, one last uh, indulgence and then I'm going to, uh, give you a sort of a wrap up question and I'm going to let you promote. So, um, and don't worry, we'll be promoting before, during and after the, the, uh, the record, uh, the recording of this. So, uh, any memories at all about lacrosse, which I think is a unique, kind of sport uh, the philadelphia wings 
don't know how much you remember about them, but they um, they kind of stood out in the fledgling indoors uh, league of 74, 75. And then once it kind of came back in the late 80s, I don't know if you felt a sort of special uh, feeling about uh, indoor lacrosse because it was certainly um, unique, I guess, versus most other markets, maybe Baltimore, maybe New York. I totally agree. I, I was very close to it. I loved it. I thought it was a great game. Uh, these guys running around without pads and they, they, they had fights like hockey. They would drop their uh, rackets or whatever you call those things. And they would, they would, they would start fighting and these guys are tough. And that ball, that ball hits you. You don't have padding other than the goalie. That was a tough, tough sport. And, and it's like longer than a football, uh, longer than a basketball court. Uh, it was the size of a hockey arena. And that was exciting. Eddie Tepper owned it, owned it, the Philadelphia Wings. And uh, they had some great players. And the most amazing thing of all is that the day that the Flyers won the Stanley Cup, uh, May 19th of 1974, and the city erupted. And we all poured outside of the building into the parking lot and everything. There was 19,000 lacrosse fans waiting to come in for the first game. Eddie Tepper, a genius at marketing and organization, was able to sell out their opening game in a year when the Flyers owned not only the city, but the region. So here we win the Stanley Cup. The game's over, I don't know, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock. Six and we're all partying and the parking lot is going crazy. The city, the cars are blocking Broad Street and people are standing on top of cars and horns are honking. And 19,000 people go into the building to watch the Kings, uh, to watch the, um, the, uh, the team, the wings. So there's a young guy. He was only 14 years old by the name of Andy Abramson, who worked for Eddie Tepper as a gopher and whatever for the Wings that one year. And I've had him on my radio show. He's, he's a, a connoisseur of wines, and he's in Europe right now all the time. Uh, he's 14 years old. Now, the, the Bruins are so dejected that they're still in their locker room at 7 o'clock, two hours, three hours after the Flyers game. Phil Esposito is smoking a cigar. A couple other guys are smoking cigars sitting with him. And Eddie Tepper, according to Andy Abramson, a 14-year-old kid, says, Andy, go in and get those guys out of the locker room because we need to get in there with our team for the game. <laughs> Andy Abramson goes in and says, and he looks at them, and they, don't, they pay no attention to him. He comes out, he gets a hold of a very large security guy. Uh, I forget his name, but his name was intimidating. <laughs> and uh, the security guard goes in and says to Phil Esposito and the other fellow, gentlemen, can I help you with your bags? <laughs> and they got the word and they got up and they went. Well, Andy Abramson was 14 years old and he got the guard to throw them out of the locker room afterwards. But the wings, I'm glad they're back. Comcast uh, bought the franchise. Uh, the Lacrosse League, National Lacrosse League, is based here just outside of Philadelphia in Conshohocken, and, and they're do, all doing very well. And I, I'm so happy. It's a it's a great game. I love I indoor soccer. I, I, I love I, indoor lacrosse. Great game. 
Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think both of them are are absolutely tremendous. All right, so we could go on and on. It's so many different. You know, I could literally just literally point to a date on the calendar, and you probably would have at least some inkling of a memory of of such. But uh, alas, we only have a few more minutes. So let me just maybe ask you sort of a summation question. I guess what? Yeah, you know, I don't want to go with sort of the, the denouement and how it. Uh, you know, uh, and it, it the new building next door, and he kept the the spectrums. I, I guess that's a, that's a question I'll ask maybe sort of as a lead up. Why did the when the new um, the new building was built across the street, right? The times change and modern conveniences and stuff. Why did the spectrum stick around for uh, almost a decade, I guess, right next door versus being torn down? I, I think the, the 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 traditional logic would be out with the old and with the new and not give it competition. But for a number of years, the spectrum was uh, the sort of sidekick building to the brand new one that was built right next door. Yes, yes, it was. The uh, Wells Fargo Center, then called the Core State Center, opened in 1996 and closed in 2009. So that was 13 years later. And um, Peter Luca, who ran the Wells Fargo Center, a uh, very terrific guy with a very sharp business mind, said, hey, listen, we now have 52 more weekends to put in concerts, to put in events. And this is fantastic. And he booked that building pretty well. And the building was very functional. The building wasn't ready to be torn down. It just didn't have the availability in those four and a half acres to to have all the luxury suites, to have a fancy restaurant, to have shops with all the merchandise they sell nowadays, to have meeting rooms, to have luxurious locker rooms and, and fan areas that you can go to. So Ed Snyder went ahead and started to build this uh, new uh, uh, arena. But the spectrum was very functional. So Ed Snyder called me in 2008 and invited me back uh, long after I left to close the spectrum and said, Lou, you're, you're somebody who loves the spectrum. You named it, you opened it, you closed it. Uh, can you book it and run it and create memorabilia and give it the proper closing that it deserves? Because my guys are focused on all these other businesses we have in the, and the new arena. And uh, you're the guy that can do it. So I came back and, my my job was to sell memorabilia and honor it. My passion was to keep it open. And I thought I found a way to keep it open. Uh, I thought we could put a sports museum in there. I thought we could turn it into a film and uh, commercial video place, which I thought we had a good shot. And I realized that these guys who, uh, while Ed Snyder had the passion, uh, that his executives did not. Uh, they they basically wanted it going. Uh, that meant more parking revenue uh, for the empty ground. And it meant one less thing that they had to concentrate on, which I, I understood. So uh, the spectrum eventually went down. And uh, it's sad. And there, I have to tell you, there are legions of people in the Philadelphia region. And there are websites dedicated to the spectrum, lamenting that it's not here anymore, that we didn't do something to keep it. Uh, but the new building had all the bells and whistles, and uh, it was just a matter of time. What, what do you miss the most from that building? Oh, uh, the people. How about the people? How about we went to work in a bunker, concrete bunker, on, in, in a basement in South Philadelphia, and we were a family, and we we cried, we laughed, we fought, we 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 succeeded. The building is is still legendary, 
and people pay homage to it all the time. Uh, it was just such a great place. It was so small. There was one corridor in the whole place. You walked around on the one corridor. There was nothing on the second level, nothing on the third level. And it was, the, the floor was sticky. The bathrooms were jammed. The poor ladies stood, stood in line for 20 minutes. Uh, the, the locker rooms were tiny. There were only a few super boxes, but it was home. Uh, it was our start. It was it was America's show place. All right. I can't let the conversation go without you telling our audience what your passion is now. And it sounds to me mm-hmm. like a lot of it drafts off of what we've just talked about for the last hour and a half. And this is this museum of sports uh, that you've been uh, uh, at for a couple of years now. What is it? What will it be? What do you want it to be? And uh, maybe a status update about Perhaps when and where? Well, it's it's been a challenge, uh, Tim. Uh, uh, I've been trying for many years now to open a world-class sports museum in Philadelphia, a city of museums, uh, a, a museum that celebrates all sports, uh, uh, not just Philadelphia sports, which would certainly be the center of it, but the Olympics and the Army-Navy game. That's in Philadelphia and Joe Frazier and Rocky and uh, uh, my colleague, uh, Dr. Nicholas Tapachi, who's a cardiologist. He has a collection, a personal collection of over thirty five million dollars worth of incredible memorabilia. He's got Joe Lewis's championship belt. He's got um, uh, Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier's robes and their gloves from 1971 fight of the century at Madison Square Garden. He's got Jesse Owens track jersey from the 1936 Olympics when Hitler thumped his nose at, at a black man running in, in, in Germany. Uh, he's got Ty Cobb. We have Jackie Robinson's rookie Jersey with a cleat rip in it where somebody spiked them in the chest and there's a blood mark next to it. Uh, we have Babe Ruth's bat, Babe Ruth's jersey. I could go on. We have Johnny Unitas's bronzed jockstrap. <laughs> I mean, we got stuff from A to Z. You name it. Lou Gehrig, uh, Joe DiMaggio, uh, World Championship. Anyway, there's nothing. There ain't nothing that we don't got. So, uh, we've been wanting to open up a world-class uh, museum in Philadelphia, but I got to tell you, it's tough. It's been tough. We need to raise $10 million, and we haven't been able to do it so far. Governor uh, and former Philadelphia Mayor Ed Rendell was our finance chairman, and he gets presidents elected. And he, he has been unable to raise that kind of money. And and it fell back to this, Tim. Um, sports is, is not something that people want to contribute money to. They think the team should be doing this. Well, the teams, each of the team owners has their own pet charity and they don't have room or funds for something like this. 76ers, I will say, have been wonderful. They've given us money, promotion, all kinds of services. But and then the pandemic hit and took the wind out of our sails. So we lost a lot of momentum, but 
We're still hoping to do something in Philadelphia um, on a major basis. Uh, there aren't too many sports museums in the world that celebrate all sports. There's a lot of sports museums. There's the NBA, the MLB, there's all the NASCAR, tennis. Everybody has their own museum. This would be something that would celebrate all sports. So uh, right after the first year, we're going to open a small museum as a demonstration in Washington Township, New Jersey, near uh, um Dr. Tapachi's um, uh, house, and uh, we're going to put about 30% of our collection in there so, and use it as a, a place to invite potential sponsors to underwrite uh, the Philadelphia Museum. I, I'm, I'm, I wait, Tim, every day, and uh, I, I've been lucky. Um, I'm holding up for more luck. I wait for the phone to ring or that email to come in, and a guy says to me, hey, I'm a billionaire, and I love your idea. How can we get together? <laughs> All right. Well, how could, well, how can well, how can our listeners uh, uh, follow what you're doing and or perhaps get involved, learn more, maybe come visit you in in Washington Township uh, when it's up and running and, and maybe uh, somehow help uh, either solicit or or somehow be part of or or, or whatever of this uh, of this endeavor? Because yeah, this this uh, sort of uh, dovetails neatly with our little genre. I mean, I, you know, arguably we'd love to ha- help you house a wing of, of leagues and teams that are no longer around because frankly, they have nowhere else to go. Right. So that is, that is so, so true. And there's so much rich history that, that, that uh, gets contributed just, just because the fact that world team tennis doesn't uh, exist anymore. Look, Lord, I, I get to, we talked about indoor soccer a few minutes ago. You can't even find indoor soccer in the wait for it. National soccer hall of fame in now. in uh, I think it's in Frisco, Texas. Um, they won't even acknowledge the existence of the MISL, which is frankly criminal because it's part of the history of the sport in this country, which was not a straight line for, for many years, especially in the seventies and eighties. Right. So, um, how, how can people find out more about it? Well, it is criminal, Tim, that so many of these things are not acknowledged, you know, things that aren't here anymore. Uh, our kids, and uh, look, maybe we'll talk about my book for a second, but uh, in a minute, but uh, I'm glad that my grandkids and my kids uh, uh, who didn't, uh, weren't old enough to know some of the things I was involved in with the Flyers in the early days with the Spectrum and everything. Uh, we need, we need to save history. And, uh, uh, th- Folks can go to uh, the website, themuseumofsports.org, and read all about the possibilities of this new uh, museum opening. We're a non we're a nonprofit. We don't have a salary. I haven't been paid anything. Uh, we're a 501c3 a, a corporation recognized as a charity by the uh, uh, IRS, and we just want to get this thing going for the fans. Uh, this is the fans museum. You know, this is the underdog museum. So go to go to the website. And uh, if you, there's a donate button if you want to donate thirty dollars, ten dollars, fifty, whatever. Um, we're, we're trying to build right now a website. Uh, I'm sorry, a a um, what would you call it? Um, a virtual museum where you can go and see these incredible items and almost touch them. And and there's this uh, NFT or NTF nowadays. Uh, NFT, non-fung- yes. non-fungible yeah. tokens, right? There you go. I mean, you um, know, in, in this day and age when we're going to create digital versions of uh, of, uh, of trading cards and stuff, I mean, come on, the, a museum that maybe encompasses or embraces or anticipates that kind of technology, not a bad idea. 
Well, that, that's, that's hopefully what we're going to be doing. I'm learning a lot of this stuff through my daughter who graduated <laughs> from college recently and she's into uh, digital stuff. So, uh, we'd like to raise money to have a, a really good virtual reality museum. Uh, so that's one thing that somebody could do. Go to that website. All right. And last but certainly not least, let's talk about the brand new book just came out earlier this month as we were recording this. Uh, It's called Blades, Bands and Ballers, How Flashing Cash Rescued the Flyers and Created Philadelphia's Greatest Show Place. Um, uh, How's the how's the Howard books uh, going thus far? Uh, Are you doing any signings? I know in the era of COVID, it's a little hard to do. What else uh, and where else can we uh, learn more about the book besides well, buying um, it at our local bookseller? I have a bunch of signings lined up after the holidays, and uh, it certainly has been curtailed by uh, by the COVID situation. But uh, anybody who would like to get an autograph book uh, personalized for them can go to themuseumofsports.org, themuseumofsports.org, and for a $35 contribution to the museum, they will get a book signed by me with for their personal name on it. It includes sales tax and shipping for $35. And it goes out in a couple of days as soon as we hear from these folks. Uh, I have a few events coming up. I have a signing or two in Philadelphia at Barnes and Noble. And, um, uh, the book, the book is not about sports per se. It's about people. It's about Ed Snyder and Jerry Wallman and Ed Tepper and Earl Foreman and, uh, and these pioneers who had the, uh, uh the guts division, uh, put their houses on the line, for God's sakes, to, 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 to get a franchise in the National Hockey League, to build an arena, to expand into pay television, uh, to create a company that employs thousands now operating arenas and convention centers in, uh, internationally. These are ordinary guys. They're not billionaires, or they are now maybe, but they weren't then. And uh, they took a chance with their families. And uh, we, we need to applaud these people, as you do, Tim, through your show. Uh, these are visionaries. These are guys uh, one of a kind. And unfortunately, the corporations have taken over. They buy, they sell, they they, they get rid of things that don't uh, throw off the uh, certain ROI and, and stuff like that. So uh, the book. Blades, Bands, and Ballers available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or through my website, uh, themuseumofsports.org. It's about how people pull together, whether it was in a brick and concrete bunker down in South Philly in a basement, or, or whether it was at the top of uh, uh, an office building in the penthouse uh, financing things. Uh, one, one just very four-second comment. Ed Snyder and I went to a bank in Philadelphia to try to get financing for the flyers. And after a a 45 minute presentation, uh, we said, uh, you know, it's a $4 million loan. And uh, what do you think? And the president of the bank says to us, we don't think soccer will go over. And, and we said, well, we're hockey. And he says, what's the difference? (laughs) Well, and kudos for having the stick-to-itiveness to make the spectrum and the flyers and all the stuff that uh, that came because of it. Uh, you say in, in the, I think, a, a part of the book jacket, the imagine Philadelphia without its beloved flyers and spectrum, it almost happened. Um, 
I mean, you're the pioneer too there, Lou, right? Well, I was, um, I was the tail. Yeah, I was, I was on their coattails, but I learned a lot and they trusted me and treated me as an equal. And, uh, I will never forget Jerry Wallen, Ed Snyder, Earl Foreman, some of these wonderful, incredible, big, big people. Uh, but I did make a mistake on Rocky. <laughs> My goodness, we uh, literally uh, just scratched the surface. So many stories uh, that we did not get to get into uh, with Lou. We, uh, we we didn't talk about uh, the uh, Philadelphia Bulldogs of Roller Hockey International. How could we forget uh, Bruce Springsteen and the Grateful Dead, two of the more iconic and longer lasting uh, and, and returning uh, artists uh, that uh, just absolutely fell in love with the spectrum. We did not talk about uh, the super series that uh, uh, saw the Flyers hosting the last game of the uh, Russian uh, national team in 1976 uh, and all the fisticuffs and the attention uh, that came with that. Uh, we didn't talk about the roof blowing off the uh, off the facility a couple of times. We didn't talk about the, uh, the famous uh, Christian Leitner last second shot by Duke to beat Kentucky. In the 1992 NCAA East Regionals, an iconic moment that CBS still plays to this day. So many things, so many stories uh, that we didn't get get to, but uh, that's why you need to get the book, of course, for God's sakes. Um, and it is a wonderful romp. It's fantastic, if, especially if you were a fan of Philadelphia sports or uh, remember the Spectrum, even if you don't, if you just consider yourself a sports fan. Uh, especially in the era that the Spectrum was around, the late 60s through, geez, I guess the mid-aughts, uh, you need to get this book, Run, Don't Walk, uh, by our guest, Lou Scheinfeld. The book is called Blades, Bands, and Ballers, How Flash and Cash Rescued the Flyers and Created Philadelphia's Greatest Showplace. Of course, you can find it uh, wherever good books are found. Uh, we, of course, have a convenient link for you on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode number 241 with our guest this week, Lou Scheinfeld, and you'll find a convenient link right to it. You want to get the uh, uh, the Kindle version, you can do that. You want to get it uh, whisked away to your uh, your domicile, your your, your apartment, your uh, whatever, wherever shack that you're, uh, you're living in. Uh, Amazon can have it to you within hours or at least a day. Um, uh, by all means. And even more interestingly, and perhaps even more uh, charitably, uh, you could get a copy directly from the man himself. All you got to do is go to themuseumofsports.org, themuseumofsports.org, and uh, you can purchase a copy of this book. And for a $35 donation, not only will you receive the book, uh, but you will receive a tax deduction because it's a contribution to the fledgling Museum of Sports. And it'll be personally inscribed, uh, well, along with a designer bookmark from the author himself, the great Lou Scheinfeld. So you can't beat that with a stick for sure. Again, that's themuseumofsports.org. And for 35 bucks, you can get that book with all those goodies associated with it. Uh, however you get it, just get it. It's a great book and it makes a proverbial great holiday gift, especially for that Philadelphia sports fan in your life. You can also follow the Museum of Sports on Twitter. 
at M-O-S Philly. At M-O-S. That's M as in Mary, O as in Oscar, S as in Sam. At M-O-S Philly. On Twitter, as well as said website. If you're online, well, why don't you bookmark our website again, for God's sakes. If you haven't done it already, my goodness, here's a great opportunity. It's goodseatsstillavailable.com. That's where you're going to find every single stinking episode of this show that we've ever done. And God willing, all the ones that we're going to do to to, uh, yet to come. Uh, Of course, the easiest way, of course, is to subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcast feed. Rate and review us wherever you you listen or stream it, uh, however you want to get that. We appreciate that. On social media, you'll find us on Twitter at Good Seats Still. You'll find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. And you'll find us on Facebook at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, you can send us email by by all means. Please do so. We're at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And yes, we've got a little email weekly newsletter or weekly email newsletter, some, some combination thereof. Uh, just uh, tool around the website. You'll find a little link there. Just give us your, your name and your email address. And uh, boom, you are on the uh, VIP list. That's uh, hardly VIP, but at least you get a little couple of hours head start on what uh, each week's episode is going to be. Uh, upcoming. So uh, that's just uh, that's just kind of is a, our little uh, tribute, if you will, to the city of brotherly love this week. Uh, thank you to the great Jerry Payne, of course, for his audio excellence, Jerry Payne audio excellence. Uh, again, as always, uh, yeoman's like work. And let's send you out with some uh, some music, shall we? Uh, we alluded to it before you heard the story, uh, how Philadelphia Freedom, the song, the uh, hit song by Elton John came about. Uh, yes, the Billie Jean King, Philadelphia Freedoms, plural, of World Team Tennis. And um, you, you've heard sort of the the, the various, uh, you know, traditional versions of it. Let's leave you with a special version of it uh, this week. We're going to play the, uh, it was live on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno back on uh, September 20th, 1993, when uh, Elton showed up to pay tribute to his pal Billie Jean King, who was also there with Jay. Here it is. It's Philadelphia Freedom live on The Tonight Show with The Tonight Show Band. Uh, And uh, please enjoy, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Take care and bye. Used to be a rolling stone, no. If the cause was right, I'd leave. Find an ass on the road. It used to be a hard. Somebody, but the times have changed. The little said, the more my work gets done. Live a Philadelphia freedom. Death was a faraway flag. Give me peace out of my mind, daddy. 
Don't you know love? 